were kind of used in lots of different um, novels, stories, different ideas like that. Almost the idea of a kind of mystical idea, the kind of mystical suggestion. You know, we get to, you get to a certain point maybe in the Lord of the Rings or some other f- program like that, and we reach that point where, well, how do we move from here? And you get the sort of enigmatic, cryptic little idea, and then the heroes of the story are able to take that cryptic idea and, and work with it and develop it, and, and they get through the next bit and they survive because they've managed to take what seems impenetrable as a, as a little phrase or a little um, clue, and they've made it something and they've made it real. I guess that in lots of ways, um, we could look at this next little section of the Bible and we could feel that about the Bible. Jesus is preaching this first message we have recorded in the book of Matthew. And I guess if we've been able to stick with the series up to now, what we've seen is that he is really concerned to lay a foundation of how we are to live. That's why we've called the series The Walk of Life. How we are to live claiming faith in Him. He lays this out. And we need to follow the stream as we, as we read it because it's really easy, I think, when we do read it, that it looks a bit like confetti. <laughs> it looks like Jesus just throws ideas in and they kind of flutter around and we can pick up that idea and pick up that idea. And, and we really need to remember that what we have, I'm convinced that Jesus used far more words than this as he delivered this sermon. What Matthew has done is he's taken the structure and the key points of context, uh, content and he's brought it to us. It would take a very short time to actually read it compared to Jesus being on the mountainside. But Matthew has delivered to us this structure. And that's what it is. It's a structure. It's connected. Jesus says things at certain times. And it's really dangerous, isn't it, if we take ideas from the Bible and we treat them like confetti. Like we can just grab that pretty bit of confetti and and use it however we want. Uh, And if we do use bits of confetti however we want, we find that what we end up with is something which is not a true reflection of what Jesus is saying. So we come to this little section here and it says, ask and it will be given to you. Well, that sounds great news, doesn't it? Now, do you see why it's so important that we don't treat it like confetti? It is connected, it's not disconnected. So Jesus comes along and he says to you, right at this point in time, ask and it will be given to you. I'm reckoning that lots of us, when I've said that, have kind of quietly in our minds thought, what I would really love is, whatever it is, whatever you're into, whatever you can't quite afford in the sport or hobby that you are into right at this point in time. I guarantee that if, if that was the case, down at the front here, we would have uh, a couple of new guitars next week. It's just amazing that... No, sorry, guys. 
It's true though, isn't it? Um, yes. Is that how Jesus means it? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Jesus is saying that in the context of the message that he has delivered. And yet at the same time, what we realize when Jesus speaks so often is that he speaks in a way which does present us with something to really think about, something, something to grab a hold of, something which isn't disconnected. It's not a kind of cold, boring kind of delivery. It's, it's not that. It's not just like he's reading off a page. It is structured, but at the same time, he gives us bits to think about. You know, there's a point where he's actually asked about this, this very problem of the fact that he throws thoughts in or he presents ideas which in a way seem inaccessible. The disciples come come to him and ask this in Matthew chapter 13. Why do you speak to the people in parables? You know what a parable is? A parable is where Jesus uh, takes an idea or a a piece of uh, truth or uh, something that he wants to convey, critically important, and he tells that piece of information through a story, a descriptive story, parable. He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has not been given has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have in abundance. Whoever does not, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Then he quotes Isaiah. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus actually says there are times when I am going to speak And I'm going to speak in a way which seems like it's not quite so clear. Where does that place you and me? (laughs) Because we're here in Jesus as well. Why is it Jesus is saying, I'm saying some things and, and they don't get it, but you get it. You understand it. The kingdom of heaven has not been hidden from you, but it has been hidden from them. I think it's absolutely all to do with the way that we approach Jesus and the attitude in which we come to him. And it might be, and I want to, um, I guess, open up this afternoon with a warning, it might be that we could be in danger of approaching what Jesus is saying in a way like those who didn't understand way back when he was speaking here on the earth where we actually listen to what he says and we place ourselves above him and we judge what he's saying and we decide that what he has is no credibility, as opposed to stopping and realizing the claim that he first makes is that he is the Son of God. And therefore, what he says carries an authority with it anyway. And our job is to stop and to pause and to seek the truth in what he says. 
to seek the truth in what he says. That's a completely different attitude. It's a way of placing myself in servant position before what Jesus is saying rather than judge position in what Jesus is saying. And one of the things that he he makes really clear is when we place ourselves in judge position on what Jesus is saying, we are open to never hearing and never understanding what he says. Because by very definition, we must come to him recognizing who he is with the authority he has to speak to us. So Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. It's in the context of the structure. So I want to just help us at this point to say, let's just listen as though the, the teacher is speaking, Jesus, not this teacher. Where does he say this? That's the first question that we need to understand. Last week, what we saw was that two and a half chapters, Jesus, and Jesus has been speaking at three, two, yeah, two and a half chapters, Jesus has been speaking, and then last week we saw a turning point. What he's been doing up to now, as he's been uh, speaking to the disciples primarily, as others are listening on, he's been saying this. He starts by saying, you need to understand the demand that I'm making on you. He says to us today, 21st century Castleford, you need to understand the demand I am making on you because massive issues are at stake. What's at stake fundamentally is whether you will see the kingdom of heaven, whether you will know true eternal life. And he says this, you have heard, sorry, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, sorry, I'm going to go back a step. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness is greater than what we in our day would consider the super moral, really religious Those people that many would aspire to be like, if I could be that kind of committed to this faith, so that everything in our pattern of life just looks, we keep all of the rules, we make sure that we deliver in every single way, and we, we like to make sure that people know that we are that kind of person. And Jesus says, now you need to understand that unless you are even greater, better, than that, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. That straight away makes me concerned. It makes me worry initially because I know that I can never be that good. I can never be that moral. I can never be that upright. I can never deliver greater than the greatest. You see the point that Jesus is making. You've got to be greater than the greatest to see the kingdom of heaven. Then what he does is he takes the rule book that everybody has been working on and he blows it into the stratosphere. He says, here's the rule book. One of the rules that you have is you know what it is when you consider the issue of murder. Everybody knows what it is when you consider the issue of murder. You and I, if we were uh, hauled up in front of the police and ultimately the courts, 
and accused of murder, it would, accused of murder, not of attempted murder, okay. If we're accused of murder, it would be really strange if the person that we are accused of murdering is sat in the public gallery listening to the proceedings, wouldn't it? It just just doesn't work. You can't accuse me of murder when the person that I'm accused of murdering is sat there. You know, you go into the court, you'd hear the charges, and you would say, not guilty, and your solicitor, lawyer, would stand up and say, not guilty because the person's there. You can't have done it. And Jesus says, I'm going to accuse you of murder because I'm taking that idea and I'm, I'm taking it to a point that you have never considered before. You see, it's not about whether you pulled the trigger. It's not about whether you raised the lead pipe in the conservatory, for those of you who are old enough to know the game. It's not about that. It's about whether your attitude is that you have the kind of anger and frustration that sparks a journey to murder. You see, the murder is the outward final step. But as Jesus says again and again, the problem is not the outward step. The problem is the heart that gives birth, that seeds those final steps. And he says, you need to understand that that is the issue. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. In other words, it is as bad to be angry as it is to have pulled the trigger. Now, I am not saying, I am not saying that our legal system should be turned upside down and we should reduce murder to being the equivalent to anger. I am saying that before God, the issue that we face is that we are all marked with a failure which means that we will never meet the level of righteousness that God demands. That's the point that Jesus is making. He can't do it. And then what hopefully we've been able to see over these past few weeks is that Jesus does that again and again and again. He takes the idea and he extends it and he grows it to the point where we realize that none of us can keep it. And at the same time, he sets out a pattern of attitude, a pattern of heart change, a pattern of life, which says you can't keep it but live to that. Live in that way, but I know that you'll never keep it. That's what Jesus is doing repeatedly. And then, so that we don't get the idea that this is all about just kind of a moral crusade, he then says, and by the way, it is a treasure to live like this. It is a privilege. It is an invitation. That is how God always works with his people. He always, always sets the law for his people once they are his people. So we we see God's people. Way back in the Old Testament, those of you who uh, aren't clear on the Bible, you may be just coming to terms with that, maybe read a bit of Exodus. 
what we see is that God's people are held captive in Egypt. And God says, these are my people. And he, re- he saves them. He brings them out of Egypt and they become uh, a body of people together who are worshippers. And it is then that he gives them the law to keep. They are his people and he gives them the law. Jesus, in a sense, is doing that. You are my people if you are seeking to follow me. Now, here's the way that you should live if you are my people. It's not a case of if you live perfectly like this, then I'll accept you as my people. That's that's kind of formal um, works-based religious activity. You know, that's the tick box that we've been talking about. He's saying, because you are my people, live like this. And we would say, at this point, I can't do it. Everything that has gone up to now has been saying, effectively, what we should do. The turning point here, quite simply, is this. How do we ever live like that? How can I ever live the way that God would have me live? Maybe just in the past few years, maybe you've come to be a believer in Jesus. That's great news. But I also know that 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 period of time can be a real challenge. It can be really difficult because suddenly we begin to understand, we begin to realize more and more how affected we are by the nature of our sinful rebellion against God, how how unable we are to actually live the life that he would call us to live. That can be really debilitating, It can be hugely discouraging. It can be crushing as we begin to come to terms with that challenge. How can I possibly live in that way? It might be that you're right at that point of saying, okay, do you know what? This this Christian faith, as I see it laid out in in the light of my own understanding of who I am and what God would have me be, I'm beginning to say, I want to pursue that, but I know what I'm like, and I do not think that I can keep it up. I'm not sure I can keep it up. How would Jesus speak to you? I think he would say this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock, and the door will be opened to you. What is he saying? He's saying it in the light of everything that's gone before. And he's saying to you and to me today, if you seek that kind of life, and you recognize that it is impossible for you to deliver that kind of pattern of life, you realize that you are helpless So what do you do? (laughs) And he says, ask. And it will be given to you. Ask and it will be given to you. He's not saying, disconnected, just ask for anything that you want. 
and it will be given to you. He's saying, in the light of what you are beginning to understand of your desperate need, by the pattern of life, the walk of life that I am laying out for you in these previous words, and you realize that you can't deliver it, what do you do? And he says, quite simply, ask, and it will be given to you. It's not some sort of clue at the door (laughs) that Jesus, have you been one of those treasure hunts? where you kind of, you get the next clue and you read the clue and it's, well, we're not sure what to do with that, but okay, we'll do some working out. And, and then you get it and everybody jumps back in the car and they're driving off another two or three miles down the road because you've worked out the clue. That isn't what Jesus is saying here. He's not giving you a clue, some kind of idea. He's saying quite simply, when you realize that you know that you want to live that life, You have no ability inside of you to live that life. Therefore, ask. Ask, and that will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. I think that knock is a really interesting thing, isn't it? What does knock, and the door will be opened to you, really make clear? It means... It makes it really clear that this gift, I'm going to use that word maybe a bit ahead of time, I'm going to use the word gift, this opportunity to be this that is described in the previous chapters isn't within you. You haven't got it inside instinctively. It's something which needs to be given to you by the one who also holds the door handle and has the opportunity to open the door and to give it to you. I've had lots of conversations down through the years where people have said, uh, sadly, you know, I, I just, I, I, just um, I, I, looked at, I looked at faith, looked at faith, looked at faith, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed. just didn't work for me. I just, no, I just... Just, no, I've I've given up on it. I think it's really tragic. I think it's tragic because what they've never done is they've never really got to this point. They've, they've, They've always, in a sense, they might have been asking, but it's been asking from the position of what we said before. Let me stand above and let me just see, is God going to deliver? God gonna, is God going to be there and is he, is he going to deliver in a way that I demand he delivers if I'm going to kind of commit with this? Or is it that kind of sense of I am so desperate, I'm kind of crawling towards the door and I'm knocking and banging on the door because I desperately know that the only hope that I have got is on the other side of the door and the giver is the one who has the opportunity to give me what I need. That's a very, very different attitude. I I think there's a beautiful way in which um, if if you get the book, if you can can handle the um, Shakespearean English, then read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. If you can't handle the Pilgrim's Progress in that language, then read the kids' version, Little Christian's Pilgrimage, which is really accessible. Uh, John Bunyan paints this picture of Christian who's on a journey. 
uh, and he, he realizes he's got to leave the city. It's a picture, it's a parable. It's this picture which is saying, I've got to leave this city and I've got to set off on this journey to the king's city because I know that this city that I'm in is a city which is destined for destruction. I've got to leave. And he sets off and he walks across this plain and he, and he ends up in this, uh, this bog and he's getting sucked down by the mud and then he gets dragged out by uh, a guy called Help who pulls him to the side and he carries on and then he realizes he's just being shot at with arrows and, and he just about makes it to the wicket gate and, and the door opens, he bangs on the gate, the door opens and somebody drags him in. It's a great picture. It's a picture of what Jesus is saying here. Here's the promise that Jesus makes. If you desperately want to be a follower of me, if you really know that you want to pursue me, you will realize two things. You will realize firstly that you have no strength in and of yourself, to be able to do it. That means I need to ask, I need to seek, and I need to knock. I've got nothing in me that can do it. And then what he says is fantastic. Because he says that when you reach that point, the next bit comes into action. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. That says to me, according to what Jesus is saying here, that anybody who really reaches that point when they bang on the door, Jesus will never shut the door in your face. He'll never open the door and say, don't like the look of you. He'll never open the door and say, I know what's in your past. No go, pal. He'll never open the door and say, you're coming with all of these current issues. We've got to sort out these issues first. He'll never do that. In other words, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I know that I'm going to have people on their knees banging on the door outside and I guarantee that I will open the door and I I will bring you in. But when you stand at the door, I want to suggest, and you look at the framework, and you decide whether it's an acceptable door, metaphorically, when you decide whether it weighs up against those other things that could be the alternatives, when you shout rather than desperately knock, and you decide, actually, there's nobody who's really interested in me. And you walk away. You have never, never reached the point that Jesus is describing. I want to encourage you, please, make sure that you approach this door in the right way. It's critically important. Because Jesus' promises are at stake. What's at stake is... I will bring you in. I will receive you. You see, there's a flip side 
to approaching the door in that kind of higher attitude kind of way. The flip side is this, that we can also approach the door thinking, I am just such a mess. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even feel as if I can come to Jesus. I don't feel as if I go through that door. I do not feel as if I've got the ability to carry on walking on that way of the king. Jesus says this, I'll receive you. There is no one who is too bad. There is no one who is too messed up. There is no past that is too much of a problem when you truly come. That is a massive issue for us as human beings, for some of us. Because we actually look at that and say, no, no problem in the background. No issue that's too bad. Nothing. No. Nothing. Well, I don't really like that, to be honest. Because that gives the possibility, doesn't it, of really, really bad people being accepted by Jesus. Really bad things in the past having happened. And then suddenly... Like it seems like some magic trick, Jesus whips out salvation and gives it to you. Free. When there's bad stuff, you say quite simply this. <laughs> we have not even, if we think that's the case, if we think that somehow Jesus gives gifts to people who've done really bad things, gives life to people the gift of life to people who just don't deserve it because of their really murky past, we haven't even got close to understanding what Jesus dying on a cross actually meant. Because what it actually means is that the perfect, eternal Son of God stands in the place and bears the guilt and the shame and the punishment of that very act that we are so ang rightly angry about. We're rightly angry about it. And Jesus says, I'm angry about it as well, and I'll bear it. That's good news, isn't it? For those of us who feel that actually I'll never be good enough. I'll always be accepted because Jesus is good enough. So the first thing that we understand is that we receive something rather than drum it up from within. The second thing that we see is that it's a gift. Quite simply, it's a gift. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good, give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is just drawing this great contrast. Here's the thing. What are you like as a person? Somebody who you really love, who comes along and asks you for something which is within your power to give. Within your power to give, would you give them a bad thing? So... 
somebody who you really love comes along and asks for bread. It is in your power to give bread. Are you going to give them a stone? Your son? Your daughter? Your nephew? Your niece? Somebody who you really love? Somebody who you look on with absolute affection? Who if you kind of take that idea and you carry on the metaphor that Jesus is is saying, it's kind of like this. Somebody who's banging on your door in desperation who's desperately hungry and says, will you give me bread? Somebody who you love is banging on your door. Would you ever open the door and say, listen, just take a stone instead? Jesus is painting a picture which is just so impossible to conceive that it would ever happen. Then he says, exactly the same idea, desperately in need, give me a fish. Give me a snake instead. Would that ever happen? Would it ever happen? No, of course not. Why would it never happen? It would never happen for this reason. We understand what is good and what is bad, firstly. We understand that bread is good and a stone is bad in the context of hunger. So that's the first thing. So we understand the pain picture that Jesus is painting. He's saying, you come to me for life, you're saying that life is good. That's right. It's good to have eternal life. Second thing that we're saying is this, that we understand that you have the ability to give it. There's no point coming to me for a million pounds. (laughs) I promise you, there's no point coming to me for a million pounds. But there is, if you're desperately hungry and you bang on my door and you need some food, you can come to our house every day of the week. Rachel's near today, so that's fine. <laughs> but do you see the picture? I have within my power the ability to give that. I have the ability to give that. I can't give something that is outside of my ability to give, but I could give you food. Exactly the same thing that Jesus is painting. You knock on the door and you ask for life and the ability to live it, I've got the ability to give that. That's what Jesus is saying. Number one, it's a good thing. Secondly, it's within my power to give. Thirdly, I am willing to give it. I'm willing to give it. In other words, it's something that I can freely give. It's not a problem. You come and you ask and you get it. It's a gift. It's a gift. We find receiving gifts way more difficult way more difficult than we'll actually admit to. Oh yeah, on a birthday, that's great, no problem. You know, people give us gifts, we're comfortable with that. But those, those other gifts, those really big things, those, those things that we recognize, we have no ability to, to deliver for ourselves and somebody comes along and says, here you are. What is our first reaction? No, 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 no. I want to be self-sufficient. I, 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 I want to kind of, you know, I, I'll, I'll be all right. Oh, okay, well, I can't believe that you're giving me this. But let, let, I'll tell you what, because you've given me this, I'm going to do this for you. I, I, I'll, re, I'll promise you I am absolutely committed to, in my own way, paying you back. 
I'll do one of those. I'll either say, no thanks, because it's just way too big and I like to be self-sufficient. Or I say, I'll, I'll pay you back in some way. And Jesus says, no, listen. You can never, never gain eternal life. But if you knock on the door, I will give it you. I'll give it you freely. It's so big. Number one, you can never be self-sufficient. Number two, you can never pay me back. Never. It's just too big. It's too big. It's a gift. So quite simply as we close, what is the gift? What is this thing that Jesus says, knock on the door and it will be given to you? Because I know how to give good things. Because I'm the kind of father that gives good things to his children. You know what it's like. You know what it's like to, uh, to love somebody and give something that is good to the people that you love. I'm just like that. And by the way, let me just, as he says, let me just reinforce that. How much more will your Father in heaven give, give, give good gifts to those who ask him? Why? Because you're evil and you know how to good gift, give good gifts. You know, Jesus is making the contrast. You're, you, compared to God... We're not what we ought to be. We're so different, we'd be described as evil. But we're now to do good. Bit of a kind of paradox, that, isn't it? Jesus is saying. In the light of what you really are, you're evil, but you know how to give good gifts. What about me? I'm, I'm just, just, I'm so good. <laughs> then it's not surprising that I'll give. But what is it that is given? Jesus, I don't think Jesus really makes it clear. Well, he doesn't make it clear at this point. We are in the most astoundingly privileged position. Because we have the opportunity not to sit simply at this message. We have the opportunity to look forward and see how this gift works its way out. What have we said? We've said quite simply... We can never live the way that we ought to live. And yet Jesus, we've said repeatedly, is the one who lived the way that we ought to live. So when I knock at the door, what I see emerging through the rest of the story of Jesus, when I see the, the message of how Jesus saves us, as it's way, the way it works its way out, we realize that what I actually receive is two things. Firstly, I receive a perfect life, a delivery that I cannot achieve myself. So when Jesus says, your righteousness has got to be more righteous than all of the most righteous people you can possibly imagine in, in all of those religious leaders, the Pharisees who live according to the rules, you've got to be better than them. Jesus says, that's what you've got to be. But then he delivers it. Now what we see worked out 
over the rest of the New Testament is the idea that we in this privileged position of 21st century viewers are able to look back and see the whole story. We're able to see that what Jesus says is what you really need is my life. You need the life that I live because you'll never live the life that I live, but I live the life that I live so that I can give that life to you. I'll give my perfect life to you. And then suddenly I realize that what Jesus says at the beginning, you've got to live the most perfect life. I realize if I've got his life, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm living that perfect life. I'm living a life which is righteous before God. Not because I'm delivering it, but because Jesus is delivering it. That's exactly what I receive. Why do I receive that? Because Jesus receives my life. He bears my life. He takes that on. So that's the first thing that we receive. When we knock on the door, we receive this, in biblical terms, we would, con- we would call that a, a point of just justification. We are justified. We, re- we reach a point where we are now considered in the courtroom of heaven to be accepted. His life is my life. But what we've said right through this series is this. Jesus is saying two things. Number one, you can't deliver it. Number two, you've got to aim at a life which is shaped according to that pattern of delivery. So Jesus says, number one, you'll receive that justified life. You will be considered that. But you cannot, I cannot walk away and say, because I've received that, I can do whatever I want. I'm bound. I am now a servant. Paul makes it clear, I am now a servant to righteousness. I am owned. So what do I need? In fact, what happens when I knock on the door and receive the gift? What else do I receive? I receive the same power, in a sense, come back to that, as Jesus needed to live that life. How did Jesus live a perfect life? So he was the son of God. But what empowered him to live that life? What made him truly human and yet truly God? His nature, yes. But then at the same time, what we see is that Jesus, at the point where he is baptized, there is a moment where there is this portrayal of the the work of the Father and the Son together. Jesus is empowered with something, says in um, Matthew chapter 3, this. Soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Son of God, the Spirit of God, descending like a dove and alighting on him, the Son of God. The Spirit of God descends on Jesus. 
painting a picture for us which says, as we see worked out, we have not time to go through all of this this afternoon, do some work yourself, we see that Jesus is able to live the life that he lives because he is in harmony and in perfect relationship and is empowered by the Spirit of God. That wonderful picture of the Trinity of God present in this world. Now look at how uh, it's later described by Luke in the book of uh, Acts. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. That's what he says. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. The way he lived was because of the power of the Holy Spirit working in him. Jesus wasn't alone in the mission of salvation in this world. He was empowered by the Spirit of God. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Isn't that amazing? That's how Jesus did it. Because God was with him. Because somehow there is this amazing connection because between Jesus walking this earth and the Father in heaven bound together, delivering together by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when I knock on the door and when I receive the gift, I hear these words in Ephesians chapter 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. That's the knock on the door and the receiving of the gift. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit. who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Here's the thing. What do I receive? When I knock on the door, I receive two things. I receive the justifying statement of God that I am saved by the life that Jesus lived. And I also receive the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit to dwell within me and to work with me in relationship with God in this world so that I gradually no longer live the way I used to live. I am empowered to live a different life. I am justified, if you want to keep hold of that word, statement, a moment of statement. The decree is made in heaven and I am sanctified. Because I am now placed in a context of indwelling power that little by little defeats the nature of who I am. That's what I receive. That's what you receive. Do you see how this is a turning point in, the, in what Jesus is saying? Do you see how this is a massive turning point? Everything is about what, what we should be. And you say, but How? How can I ever do that? This is the how. Because we receive the power of the Holy Spirit to, to live a different life. How can I do it? 
by God dwelling within you, by you receiving that gift of the Holy Spirit, so that you are able to do things that you could never have believed that you could ever possibly defeat in your life. And you are reminded as well that there are some things that you continue to fight against. There's some things that you are continuing to to fail against, but you are now conscious that you're failing in them. Because the Holy Spirit is working in you to, to convince you of what you are not, and yet what one day you will be. This is the turning point. The point where Jesus says right now, this is how you can live this impossible life. I, I just want to just close by asking this simple question. Are we all convinced that we are living knowing that the Holy Spirit is empowering us to live the life that Jesus would have us live, this walk of life. 